The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I mentioned before that the Gospel of Mark is by far the shortest of the Gospels, and that's certainly apparent when we hear of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Instead of a longer description of Satan quoting Scripture and tempting Jesus here and there with three different temptations to dissuade him from being the Savior, you get two verses about Jesus tempted in the wilderness among wild beasts and angels. It's so short that on this first Sunday of Lent, where we traditionally hear about the temptation of Jesus, you get to hear about his baptism in the Jordan again, and the start of his public ministry again, which you've already heard about in the gospel reading since Christmas. Now, you get these three in a row in a reading where you're barely done standing up before it's over. Jesus is baptized, Jesus is tempted, and then Jesus starts to proclaim the gospel of God. Kind of interesting, though, seeing these three events tied together. For instance, in that description of Jesus' baptism, you have these mentions of land and river, the heavens, the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Call me crazy, but in those verses, you've got a lot of things in common with the creation of Adam back in Genesis 1 and 2. I'll grant that some of it is a little vague, but... Once God creates land out of water over which the Spirit hovers, he then creates Adam in a garden with a notable river. When Jesus is baptized, it's in the river that separates the old promised land from the wilderness. And he's baptized there when any old jar of water would have done the trick. When Adam is created, he receives God's breath. When Jesus is baptized, he receives the Spirit of God. When Adam is created, God speaks. When Jesus is baptized, the Father declares from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And remember what we've noted before. Jesus isn't baptized because he's a sinner in need of forgiveness. He's baptized because he has come to take the place of sinners, to take on their sins and afflictions so that he can die their death and rise again. Keep that in mind as we move directly from his baptism to his temptation in the wilderness because you see his work of bearing affliction already. 
if you've got some similarities between Adam's creation and Jesus' baptism there, it sharpens when you get to Adam's fall and Jesus' temptation. Adam is tempted in the Garden of Eden in paradise. He's second fiddle in that account where Eve takes center stage. But there you hear of a Satan in serpent form tempting the two of them to eat the forbidden fruit in order to be like God. They both yield to the temptation, choosing death over life. And while it will still be years before their bodies return to dust, things change right away. The Lord calls out to them, both promising that the Messiah will come and declaring the consequences of sin. What life they now have becomes much harder. God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden into a creation outside that has now become hostile wilderness. You hear of angels there. The Lord places cherubim east of the garden to oppose any attempts by Adam and Eve to return to the tree of life. Before the fall, in paradise, Adam could play with lions and bears like they were puppies. Afterwards, though, animals had become fearful beasts. Jesus isn't tempted in the garden. He's tempted in the wilderness. Wilderness that is there because of Adam's sin. Where God drove Adam out of the garden into the wilderness, now the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness too. Where Adam was tempted by Satan in a paradise that lacked nothing, and he had no good reason to turn from God, but he folded like a cheap tent anyway, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness where comforts are scarce. Adam had friendly animals in the garden. Jesus gets those wild beasts that result from Adam's rebellion. Adam has plentiful food in the garden. Jesus gets fasting for 40 days. Adam gets cherubim with flaming swords, and Jesus gets angels too. Except that the angels aren't there opposing Jesus. They're ministering to him. And that tells you something, something big. Where Adam royally messed things up when he was tempted by the devil, Jesus does not. He does what Adam should have done. He resists every one of Satan's temptations, and he opposes the evil one every time by speaking God's holy and powerful word. He is reversing the curse of Adam's sins and failure, even as he endures hardships wrought by Adam's sin. And then, after the temptation is done, and after John is arrested for preaching about the consequences of sin, you hear Jesus arrive in Galilee and preach to sinners, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus starts casting out demons, they've got to be demoralized already since Jesus has already humiliated their boss at every turn for 40 days in the wilderness. This sequence of events baptism, temptation, public ministry. It's no coincidence. The temptation in the wilderness demonstrates that Jesus has come to reverse the curse, to undo Adam's original sin so that sinners can dwell with God in paradise once more. That's his three-part sermon. 
The time is fulfilled because the seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve has arrived in the flesh. And because he is there, the kingdom of God is at hand. There is nothing sinners can do or must do to reverse the curse of sin for themselves because Jesus has come to do it all by his life and death and resurrection. So rather than do, they should stop believing it can't be done and instead believe the truth of the gospel that Jesus has done it for them. The temptation in the wilderness is momentous. Satan's been having a field day for millennia, tempting sinful suckers and watching them fall for it every time. Nothing works on Jesus, though, for 40 days. And then, after Jesus smacks him around, Jesus then starts telling sinners that in him, they can be delivered from sin and devil, too. However momentous, though, it's only one step on the way to the cross where Jesus ultimately reverses the curse by dying Adam's death and rising again on the third day. As we've noted before, Jesus calls for the church to continue that same proclamation today. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This message remains as relevant and important as ever today because you remain far better at falling in temptation than you do in following Jesus. It shouldn't be this way. You are baptized into Christ, and if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Lord has given you his holy, powerful word, the same word that Jesus used to thwart the devil in the wilderness. He has poured out his Holy Spirit upon you, the same spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism. By his word and spirit, the Lord has armored you against every attack of the evil one. You have no excuse to give in to temptation. Well, actually, you do come up with plenty of excuses, don't you? There's that one where you start thinking that your temptations are worse, that Jesus doesn't really know what it's like to be tempted like you are. Except that Hebrews 4 verse 15 explicitly says that in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus has been tempted like you. And in fact, he's been tempted like all, which would indicate that he has suffered a whole lot more temptation than you have. Furthermore, the one who resists temptation knows temptation more because the devil will keep assailing him. If you give in right away, the temptation is done. It's when you don't that it keeps going for a while. So if Jesus never sinned, it stands to reason that he's been tempted far more severely than you have. If that dodge fails, and you can't blame the quality of the temptation for your sin, then your next move may well be to blame God for the temptation. That one goes back to Adam, where his excuse for sin was that God had been so reckless as to make a woman to be with him. 
You are likewise tempted to blame God for putting you into situations where you fall into sin. Today's epistle stops you short there, though. For James chapter 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So your sin is not God's doing, but the work of your own desire. So much for blaming God. Now, we will note that while God does not tempt you, he will test you. Where the devil's temptation is to lure you into sin and death, God's test is to demonstrate that he protects you against sin and death. He clothes you in the armor of Christ. Then he allows that armor to be tested so that you can see the flaming darts of the devil bounce off and leave you unharmed so that you can be confident that God keeps his promises. When you give in to temptation, it is not that the armor has failed, it's that you've set down your shield and taken off your helmet in order to get a better look at those incoming flaming darts. This is also why the excuse, the devil made me do it, doesn't work either, because that's saying that God's armor isn't strong enough. None of these excuses work. All of those sins that result are killing your faith and leading towards eternal death. If you can't blame God or even the devil, well, that means it's on you. You might as well admit that you give into temptation because you want to, or you give into temptation because you doubt God would defend you. And you might as well admit that it's not the last time you'll do so either. In other words, you might as well confess your sins. Because once again, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Stop believing what is false and start believing what is true. Stop believing that Jesus doesn't understand temptation and start believing, thankfully, that he endured temptation to be your Savior who died for your sins. Stop believing that the devil can overcome God's words that you have no choice and start believing that indeed you are the weak link. Because when you acknowledge that you're the weakness... It is then that you are ready for God to be your strength. Stop believing that it is God who tempts you, because if you believe that, then you will not look to him for help against temptation. Instead, start rejoicing that it is God who defends you from every attack of the devil. Stop believing that sin is okay because you can't help yourself. And start believing that sin is so serious that Christ suffered in the wilderness and on the cross so that you might be delivered and forgiven. And then, forgiven for your sins and strengthened by his grace, examine yourself and your sins. Use the gourd God has given you to see what temptations lead to those sins 
and then consider how to step back and avoid those temptations. And then work to avoid them. Don't use God's kindness as an excuse to avoid being the holy child he has made you to be. Temptations will come along enough without you inviting them in. Always, always, always cling to Christ. There in the wilderness, he suffers hardship and temptation at the hands of Satan for you so that he might credit you with his righteousness. Then he returns and goes to the cross to take the blame and wrath for your sin, the lamb provided as the sacrifice to save you. Then he rises again on the third day to give you life. In your baptism, he has exchanged your sin for his righteousness so that you might be set free from sin and death and devil forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.